Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine, analyse a more downbeat assessment of Russian military power, and I speak to British Conservative MP and Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Alicia Kearns, on the threat the Wagner Group continues to pose despite the death of Evgeny Prigozhin. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 7th of November, one year and 256 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's go back to that uh, the Russian warship we were talking about yesterday. First pictures of it have, well, been released, really, um, revealing s- severe damage sustained in the attack. So we spoke about this yesterday, thought to be French scalp missiles, the French equivalent of the um, of Storm Shadow. I mean, uh, equivalent is essentially the same missile, just in French production. Hit the, uh, the the Russian ship stationed in the Zaliv dockyard in the port city of Kirsch on Saturday. Now, now this is about as far east as you can go in Crimea before you take your chances on the bridge into Russia. But the Askold warship, a newly built Karakut class uh, ship armed with, uh, we think, at least eight caliber cruise missile, was reportedly going through its final fittings in the harbour before being commissioned into the Black Sea fleet. So a brand new ship about as far east as you can get in Crimea and still now within range of, of Ukrainian missiles. Now, British MOD said the strike war will, will likely force Russia to consider relocating even further away from the front line. This is after they've they've pulled most of the Black Sea fleet out of Sevastopol, either to Novorossiysk and in Russia or further east around, uh, around, Ukraine, around Crimea, as we're seeing here. But MOD, British MOD, saying um, that this strike further to the eastern Crimea was further east than most previous Ukraine claimed long-range strikes. They continue, Ukraine's capability to hit Crimean shipbuilding infrastructure will likely cause Russia to consider relocating further from the front line, delaying the delivery of new vessels. OK, delay the delivery of new vessels, relocate further from the front line. Well, it's not much further you can go before you off back to Russia, quite frankly. Right, next. Uh, Russia says it's shot down 17 Ukrainian drones over the Black Sea and occupied Crimea. This is from this morning from Russia's MOD. Now, they said anti-aircraft defences destroyed nine Ukrainian drones and eight others were intercepted over the Black Sea and the territory of Crimea from Russian MOD. As I said, obviously, they accused Kyiv of using these, these drones to attempt a... Yes, that's right, a terrorist attack. Elsewhere, Russian forces have conducted missile and drone strikes against rear areas in southern Ukraine for the last two nights running. We spoke about some of it uh, yesterday, but it's been carrying on again last night. Included the largest series of glide bomb strikes to to hit since the start of the full-scale 
invasion. They were they were targeted around uh, Hezon Oblast. So Ukraine's Southern Operational Command said Russian forces had launched a KH-59 cruise missile at Dnipro City, a KH-31P anti-radar missile at Odessa, uh, both on Sunday. And then they say they shot down the KH-59 and that the 31P hit uh, infrastructure in Odessa. That was probably the strike we reported on yesterday. Separately, but, but connected to these waves of strikes, Ukraine's air force said that Russia carried on these strikes using the anti-radar missile, the 59 launched from Herzon, and also a P-800 Onyx anti-ship missile and an Iskander-M ballistic missile launched from Crimea, and then 22 Shahid 131 and 136 drones launched from Cape Shoda. That's the east of occupied Crimea, right over again towards the Kirsch Bridge. Now, note where these things are being fired from. Yes, in, in Hezon, but also increasingly Crimea and increasingly further east in Crimea. It, it indicates how Ukraine has been able to push the firing points further and further away from the front line. That's what Storm Shadow Scalp and ATACMS can do. So just imagine what they could achieve if, if Germany allowed Taurus cruise missiles to be sent. Although Boris Pistorius, Germany's defence minister, continues to insist Taurus missiles are not game changers. And as much as I hate that phrase, this isn't a game. I understand the point I think he's trying to make, but I think he's wrong there. Anyway, Ukraine says it destroyed the KH-59 missile and 15 of the drones. Then also connected, Ukraine's general staff said that Russian strikes had hit Odessa and civilian infrastructure elsewhere in Herzon. Ukraine's Minister of Internal Affairs, Igor Klemenko, said Russian forces launched 87 glide bombs on populated areas in Herzon over the last couple of days. And as I said, that was the largest number of glide bombs that we've seen used in one go since the start of the full-scale invasion. Okay, the next story. So Russia appears to have increased its stock of high-precision missiles. And this is thought to be down to a more rapid increase in missile production than previous forecasts had suggested. This comes from Ukraine's GUR, the main military intelligence director spokesperson, Vadim Skibitsky, General Skibitsky, the guy I interviewed last year. Um, you may remember the article from that interview, which was talking about high miles targeting. Got a very snotty response from the Kremlin, which is exactly what we're after. Anyway, General Skibitsky yesterday said that Russia now is estimated to have a total of 870 high-precision long-range missiles in, in reserve. He had previously stated in late August, on the 28th of August, that Russia was thought to have 585 at the time. So that's quite an increase. He said Russia produced a total of 115 long-range high-precision missiles in October alone, made up of 30 Iskander-Ms, 12 Iskander-Ks, 20 calibre, 40 KH-101, 9 KH-32 and 4 Kinzhal ballistic missiles. Now he said, General Skibitsky said, he had early said, so in August he said Russian defence enterprises were struggling to produce all the different types of missiles due to foreign component shortages. But this increase of 285 missiles assessed, assessed number since late August indicates that they've somehow got over or around that domestic production problem or at least faster than had been forecasted now the quality of these missiles the accuracy is not known not that they particularly care about the accuracy but we don't know what the the, po- the components the very sophisticated western supplied components that are that are should be subject to the sanctions and should not be getting through difficult to replicate so quite if those if the new versions of all those missiles those families of missiles um act as they should do as they would as their earlier incarnations would uh, we don't know um, but they are producing long-range missiles now later on uh, yesterday vadim skibitsky was speaking to rbc ukraine he said uh, russia is going to wait for winter to really hit before properly going for the energy infrastructure again um, he said that as last year the increased demand for gas and electricity brought on by the cold weather and when there's a greater load on the power system would be when they hit which i think is well is known and that's why there's been the push to get more air defense in there he was speaking that's those remarks were reported in the kiev independent and i'll take a pause there david Thank you very much, Dom. Um, Francis, there's quite a few updates all around the world um, for you to get through today, but would you like to start in Ukraine? 
Well, thanks, David. Last week, we speculated in detail about whether President Zelensky would seek to host presidential elections in March, something he's not obliged to do under martial law passed by the Ukrainian parliament, but which he was said to be considering. Well, we have our answer. He has ruled out holding an election because of the war. He said, we must decide that now is the time of defence, the time of battle on which the fate of the state and people depends. It's time for our country to be unified, not divided. I believe that now is not the right time for elections. Now, I won't repeat all of my speculations as to the possible reasons why this is the case. But if I had a main hypothesis, I think it's that the risks outweigh the benefits. As discussed, if one looks at the other examples of election in wartime, perhaps most notably the 1952 Korean election during the Korean War, which I talked about, then said elections were necessary for winning political support both domestically and internationally, something that is arguably not necessary in the case of Ukraine at present. It also comes with risks of Russian interference, the loss of civilian lives if the Russians sought to attack civilians at polling stations, and the chance of it exposing fractures in Ukrainian society that are currently buried. Nonetheless, this issue will not go away, and I imagine we will return to the subject again in the coming months, especially if nothing major changes in terms of the frontline picture from effective stasis often spawns a desire for change or at least a desire among people to be able to articulate their perspective via the ballot box. Elections are not just about changing leadership or not, but act as a valve for releasing pent-up pressure and frustration. The fact that Zelensky has to wrestle with this issue at all is indicative, of course, of the difference between Russia and Ukraine. As James covered yesterday, we learned via Reuters from several sources in the Kremlin that Putin has decided to stay in power until at least 2030, planning to stand for a fifth term in office in a presidential election next March, with his advisers already said to be preparing for that campaign. Of course, in a country like Russia, where dissent is crushed and election fraud is widely reported, this will just be a public relations exercise. Nevertheless, we should expect Putin to make a huge deal out of the fact that he is running for so-called re-election when Zelensky is not. This is, as discussed, a difficult moment for Kyiv, one of the darkest of the war, arguably. A sense of that frustration can be sensed in some of Zelensky's recent speeches. He admitted a couple of days ago that the Israel-Gaza conflict is taking away the focus, a direct quote, from the war in Ukraine. And it's true that much of the focus internationally has prioritised events in the Middle East, although it doesn't appear at present that that conflict is going to escalate into a full-blown war between Israel and certain Arab nations. That means, of course, that the Gaza conflict may not last as long as many feared, with obvious geopolitical advantages, if that's the right word, for Ukraine in the long term if focus returns to them. For more on that, do subscribe to our sister podcast, Battle Lines, Israel-Gaza. In the last episode, David set me the challenging task of trying to summarise 100 years of the Israel-Palestine conflict in 10 minutes, which was quite tricky, but which listeners have seem to have found quite helpful. So thanks to those who've written in. But as I say, these are challenging times with certain fractures within the Western Alliance continuing to cause issues. In other news, several dozen Polish haulage companies were accused of stabbing Ukraine in the back after blocking three major border crossings yesterday in a protest against unfair competition. Truckers from Ukraine have not needed permits to cross into Poland since the Russian invasion and the protesters want to reinstate the restrictions to limit what they see as unfair competition, comparing themselves to farmers who won concessions from the government after complaining about a flood of cheap Ukrainian grain imports. That's a minor issue in the grand scheme, but nonetheless it attracts headlines and is no doubt unhelpful for Kyiv at the present moment. It will be interesting to see what else comes out of the latest G7 summit meeting in Tokyo, which starts today and is also going into tomorrow. Japan have said Western support for Ukraine will not waver as the conflict in the Middle East intensifies. And there are plans to hold virtual talks with Ukraine's Foreign Minister Kuleba to discuss further sanctions, including on Russian 
diamonds. That's reared its head again, that debate. Though I think many would argue that that hardly sounds like the most pressing matter for discussion in the context of weapons deliveries. But we've talked about that a lot recently. No doubt Russia's decision today to pull out of a landmark Cold War security treaty will be addressed. The Treaty on Conventional Armed Forces in Europe, that's the CFE, was signed in 1990 to prevent either side building up their forces ahead of a potential invasion. Russia suspended its participation in the treaty in 2007, halted active participation in 2015, and Putin issued a decree in May denouncing it entirely. The foreign ministry has said the treaty was now history after it formally withdrew at midnight. Even the formal preservation of the CFE treaty has become unacceptable from the point of view of Russia's fundamental security interests, it said. Now, in response, NATO has announced the formal suspension of the Treaty 2, a situation whereby allied state parties abide by the treaty, while Russia does not, would be unsustainable, it said. Russia's withdrawal is the latest in a series of actions that systematically undermines Euro-Atlantic security. Russia continues to demonstrate disregard for arms control, including key principles of transparency, compliance, verification and host nation consent, and undermines the rules-based international order. Yet further signs of the splintering of old agreements and understandings about what the defence architecture of Europe should look like in response to this war being allowed to continue. But nonetheless, I don't think this should come as any great surprise. After all, what good did this treaty do in stopping Russia preparing for its invasion last year? I'm just going to jump in there, chatting to David in the background. I I, uh, I actually hosted a, a bunch of Ruskies on a CFE treaty visit, Conventional Forces in Europe treaty visit in 1999, I think, or 2000, when they were coming around counting helicopters. So the CFE treaty, as, as Francis just said, it, it's there to... Um, I mean, yeah, you literally went around and counted the other side's ships, tanks, planes, all the rest of it, you know, as if there was nowhere else in the country you could hide these things if you really wanted to. But that wasn't really the point. It was just a a mechanism um, to reach out, touch the other side, have lunch with them, see that they weren't there was some area you could you could cooperate on and then carry on that 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 discourse. So it didn't actually matter whether or not you there were five unserviceable gazelles or six that particular day. It that wasn't the point. And the fact that it's now gone yeah, matters not a jot in terms of, oh, no, we're, not, we're never going to tell how many alligator helicopters they've got or anything like that. It's the fact that it's yet another mechanism of humanity and reaching out and touching the other side and just saying, are we OK? You OK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is gone. So it, it is a, a retrograde step on, on every every level. But the important point is that it was it was almost nothing to do with the actual numbers. It was much more to it than that. And that's the important thing that we've lost. Well, thank you, Francis, and thank you, Dom, for adding some of your own experiences there. Dom, can I stay with you? For the first time in in a while, we've heard, well, it feels like sort of an interesting, potentially significant intervention from Igor Gurkin. We last sort of covered him in depth when he was arrested by the Russian state, but he's been busily writing away in prison. What's he been saying? Yeah, so Gurkin, remember, Igor Gurkin will remember this character, pro-war nationalist, former FSB officer, prominent in the uh, the 2014, the Little Green Men and and all that kind of stuff in the Donbass. Well, he, he was so he was quite an outspoken nationalist. I suppose you don't get many sort of shy, retiring, you know, drinking violet, nas- violet, violent, violet nationalists. But anyway, he was one of these people who was a bit like stop clock, telling his correct time twice a day. He was kind of on the money, but coming from a different point of view. He was very critical, or his criticisms of Russia and how Russia has conducted this war, not in any way came from a point of it was wrong. He was just saying they weren't they weren't good enough and saying they should have been more violent and better and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, he got locked up for it. He's, he was arrested in July on charges of extremism, which is, you know, I mean, the comedy is just it just writes itself. But he publicly accused Putin and the, the head of the, the Russian military of not pursuing the war harshly enough. And I think he actually did call it a war at the time. I think he used the W word. So he's been he's been locked up. But in a letter published by his wife, he's written that the Russian position is gradually deteriorating and that the Ukrainian counteroffensive is keeping them penned in. He argued that Russian forces will continue to be incapable of any broad offensive actions, even if Ukrainian forces are unable to knock out their frontline units. Now, this is coming from the Institute for the Study of War, and they're suggesting that Gherkin's 
idea that ongoing Russian offensive operations are harming the prospects for future Russian operations, i.e. you're not you're not keeping all your stuff ready for a later day, you're using it piecemeal as opposed to one big one big blow. They're saying that's notable because Russian forces still have to repel Ukrainian offensive operations while attempting to initiate their own offensives. That that sort of model has been described to me in the past as trying to repair the aircraft wings while it's on fire type thing. If you're in contact with the enemy and you're still and you're trying to reform your systems and your training programs and get more kit in and all the rest of it, it is extremely hard to do. So it is it is interesting what Gherkin is is saying. It's interesting that he feels able to say. It. I mean, he's vulnerable as anybody is in Russia's system, but in prison he's even more uh, he's even more touchable. But he suggested that Russian efforts to repel Ukraine's localized attacks across the front line and simultaneous the offensive operations will likely degrade Russian capability, offensive and defensive through to at least next spring. He said Russia is going to need the whole of the rest of this year and into the, the early months of next year uh, to be on the defensive to try, to try to eliminate emerging operational crises, as he calls it, such as the Ukrainian presence on the left bank of the uh, Dnipro River down in Herzon. He said that Russian forces are going to be incapable of broad offensive actions, as I, as I just said. And he said that the um, the positional scenario is not guaranteed, I the line's not moving anywhere over winter and he fears Ukrainian forces may be successful in breaking through because the Russian forces have been exhausted by months of combat. Now, I think that the timing of the current Russian offensive around Avdika, or he's suggesting that's odd and suboptimal, uh, which is another word for saying daft, because the, the muddy weather has really hindered offensive operations. It's always very difficult the, the Action always always favours a defender because you've got time to, or you should hopefully got time to prepare the ground, and you're not trying to move. You know, it's it's very difficult to to expose yourself and try and move forward. So that plus the the rainy season means that the the effort that Russia's put into Avdivka is particularly odd. And then just finally, Gherkin implied additional Western military aid to Ukraine and the lack of mobilisation in Russia, although they've been trying to do it by stealth. But he's suggesting that could allow Ukraine to break this positional kind of warfare, the stalemate for, for, for shorthand, and conduct offensive, successful offensive operations in 2024. So, yeah, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite an intervention. He must feel safe and emboldened to, to do it. Again, I, I would imagine he thinks he's trying to be helpful. But, I mean, you're, you're, he's getting near Prigozhin territory here. Of, yeah, Prigozhin said all the... the you know the all mutiny no bounty was not trying to unseat Putin. It was to try and get rid of the idiots in the top of the Ministry of Defence who who weren't doing their job properly. Putin took a different view, and I think maybe Gherkin might be might be entering that kind of entering the arena of the unwell to uh, to, to coin a phrase from one of my favourite movies. But yeah, so worth noting, David. Thanks, Tom. Francis, do you want to come in on this? I think it's worth dwelling on a little bit further, just because obviously this goes against the prevailing narrative we've been discussing for weeks now of the stalling Ukrainian counteroffensive, as, as, as some have put it. It certainly does. And we've talked about this recently, that there does seem to be this assumption that everything is dandy as far as the Russian forces are concerned, whereas things are more challenging from the Ukrainian perspective. Now, of course, part of that is because the onus was on Ukraine with regard to the counteroffensive and all the eyes were on them. So naturally, when there have not been some of the huge breakthroughs that were hoped for, then people start raising questions. So it's understandable in that regard. But what I do find challenging is when you just hear people assume that the Russian army will rebuild, will inevitably grow much stronger and that all is is well with it. I just think that that is highly contestable. And as we see from these remarks that Dom's has been discussing, clearly that is not the perspective of people who would know far more about this than us and uh, <laughs> you know people who've actually been heavily involved in all of this, that this is not a, a strong position for the Russians to be in, not least because they are not only trying to hold on, at least as far as their public position is concerned, not just trying to hold on to the territories where they're currently defending, but they are also still trying to 
take over the entire country. That remains their objective. And in that context, this is going disastrously badly for the Russian armed forces. But I think another reason, too, why we focus so much on the Ukrainian fragility at the present moment is the simple fact that, again, talking about the differences between democratic Ukraine and autocratic Russia is we are able to ask questions much more deeply about the Ukrainian armed forces. For one, they are much more open about that. And we discussed the the essay of the commander in chief last week. But also we have access to units on the ground. We're able to talk to soldiers. We're able to talk to senior figures. This is an open discussion and debate. It is representative in some ways of the democratic nature of Ukraine itself. Whereas the Russian armed forces are largely shrouded in this veil of mystery. And whilst we're able to glean, of course, a lot from of their losses, from satellite imagery and open source data and things that the Russians say themselves, it is not the same. It is not the same process and it is much more difficult to acquire accurate information. So instead of us always seeing it, I think, as negative that we know so much about challenges within the Ukraine armed forces, I think we should see it in light of we're understanding, we're learning more all the time as the Ukrainians are, and they're open about that fact. And it is trying to develop forces and improve them for future offensives, rather than it being seen as indicative that everything is going badly. It's more complicated than that. But I think that it's an interesting... To see these remarks at this time will no doubt cause immense frustration from the Kremlin at this very moment when the narrative they probably feel is on their side. These kind of remarks being reported in the Western media from a senior figure talking about quite how dire the situation is within the Russian armed forces will not be helpful. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Dom. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot for us, I think, to get our teeth into over the next few days, not least the, uh, the apparent Ukrainian presence on the well the Ukrainian presence on the left bank and what that means for Russian forces in the area. But Francis, before we go to our final thoughts, there's been some updates in the diplomatic sphere around the EU. Can you talk us through them and then we'll then we'll wrap up? So, yes, this is very much breaking news. It's only come in in the last sort of 15, 20 minutes or so, I believe, in terms of it all being written out. So bear with us if it's a little bit scant on some of the details. But we understand from Radio Free Europe that Ukraine has completed four of the seven steps required for it to start talks on joining the EU. So the Commission, which is, of course, the executive body of the EU, is expected to issue a positive assessment of Ukraine's progress on Wednesday. So the document suggests that the Commission's criteria for the vetting and selection of judicial appointments has so far been met, in addition to changes to Ukraine's anti-money laundering and media legislation. However, it is yet to fully meet the standards on corruption, de-oligarchization, God, what a phrase, and the protection of national minorities. Now, interestingly, those are all things that President Zelensky addressed in discussions last week in terms of initiatives that Ukraine is pushing. I won't go over again why this is so important for Ukraine's long-term future, but nonetheless, I think it's an important point to emphasise here that this will be a huge boost for the Ukrainians in the diplomatic context. If the EU Commission had said that that Ukraine was not making anywhere near enough progress for the accession talks to even begin, then that would have been yet another blow at quite a significant and delicate political, geopolitical moment. That has not happened. It seems like they are going to be getting some very warm words indeed. And again, important to zoom out here and reflect on the war as a whole. Russia started this war with maximalist aims in order to take over Ukraine and stop it falling into the Western fold from its perspective. That maximalist aim has failed militarily and it is now failing politically. So just important to remember that for all of the pessimism around at the moment, this is still very much not the picture that Russia would have wanted almost two years into their full scale invasion that was only supposed to last three weeks. Well, thank you, Francis. And thank you, Dom. Let's go then to Dom Nichols for your final thoughts. Yeah, thanks, David. So I've been looking at the ideas of Alexander Jokic, who's a political analyst, sometime, well, a Bloomberg columnist, you'll find him on Twitter, worth a follow. And he put out a thread yesterday that I thought was really interesting and slightly, might rain slightly on France's parade, but is, I think, worth looking at. So, yes, the war is going badly for the Russian military. There's nowhere near what they they thought or what they wanted to achieve, what they thought they could achieve, what they thought they were capable of. Of They have literally in the last couple of days had their ass gold handed to them on a plate. So it's not going well from the military. But 
Alexander's saying that, that Western observers, when we look at the battlefield and we look at stalemates and uh, counteroffensives that's not going where it should and all that kind of stuff, the, the idea is then taken by many people a step further into, oh, it is now the time to start negotiating for peace. And that, he's suggesting, comes from a point of view that Putin also recognises that his military is, is not up to the job and that he would seek a way out. And Mr. Jokic is saying that's simply wrong. He is making the claim, which I think I think sounds very sensible to me. I, I welcome your comments and Francis' comments, everyone's view, really. He's saying that Putin remaining in the war um, is what's keeping him in power and gives his rule meaning. He says that Russia, under sanctions with a light totalitarian political system, but without an external threat, is unsustainable. This eternal war has become necessary, has become a necessity for Putin. Alexander is saying that Western leaders, and he includes Biden's administration in this, may be thinking along the lines of, oh, Russia has been strategically contained, NATO strengthened, Ukraine is, is standing, it can afford to give up a little bit of its territory for security guarantees. Not great, but not terrible for Ukraine. Zelensky might hold elections, might be defeated, but Ukraine's going to going to carry on in in large part what it was ten years ago, and certainly February the twenty third last year. But Alexander Jokic is saying Putin would rather take a low intensity war without any agreements than a kind of negotiated peace now. And he says that Putin is constantly drawing red lines in the sand, not to stop the war and to stop Western aid, but to control its size so that he can just manage this eternal war of lower intensity to his own advantage. And so Alexander Jokic is, is saying that actually this focus on stalemate, counteroffensive, blah, 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 the West doesn't have to break Zelensky, i.e. push him for negotiations. It still has to break Putin because there are not going to be any negotiations, he's suggesting. It's in Putin's aim. In fact, his whole survival is built around there being a constant other, there being a threat, there being a war on. He can't have peace. So he's not going to do anything in his power to, to go out of his way to, to look for it. I thought that was a really interesting comment. You'll see that. I think he put it up yesterday, but, uh, but you'll find it if you have a look through his thread. Alexander Jokic. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you very much. Dom, any reaction to that, Francis? And what's your final thought? It's a very interesting thesis, this, and I haven't formed a full opinion on it yet. So I'm going off the cuff here rather. But I, I think what it does underline is the degree to which there is still a part of the Russian state that is very much thinking of this war in terms of the long term now and is recalibrating decisions around that fact. And that way may well mean that they feel their position becomes stronger over time. Again, I think that's contestable, but they may well think that and thereof not be willing to concede any or contemplate, sorry, should I say, any ceasefire that would, even if it meant them keeping certain territorial gains that they have made. That's important to remember, as I was talking about earlier on. And yet, I do personally think that if Putin were to be offered a deal that would see him keep Crimea and keep the territory he's currently holding, then he would probably accept that. I think that because of the risks of a conflict on his society, we've already seen numerous examples of fault lines. It's exposed within the elite, the economic consequences, the military consequences. These are severe and should not be downplayed. I think perhaps the best way of thinking about this is that there's a malleable definition of what victory means that changes over the course of this conflict. And so whilst it may well be that he would accept peace now, he might not accept peace tomorrow and then he might accept peace again a different day. Context is everything. As I said before, I think there's a great open debate about whether Putin is a rational actor or a purely ideological one. A purely ideological one will not consider under any circumstances not winning a maximalist goal. A more pragmatic one might And I still think Putin is more of a pragmatic actor than an ideologue, more of a Stalin than a Hitler, say. And so that is relevant to this subject. But do I think that if there was going to be a a deal offered to Putin 
that he would reject it out of hand? No. Do I think he would more likely accept it? Yes. But do I think that that is a fixed position? Absolutely not. Because I think that the situation at the moment is very malleable and it is worth remembering, which is to the point that Don was just discussing, that Russia maintains at the moment that it is committed to maximalist aims. And I would argue that all, even for whatever caveats I've just thrown in, all decisions about supporting Ukraine should be seen in that vital context. Until Russia publicly is willing to acknowledge that it has lost in its fundamental aims in Ukraine, then we should be fighting this war, we being the West, as if his objective is still to capture Kyiv and seize the entire country. Not at all. Uh, it's very interesting. I mean, it made me think what you were saying there, Francis, about my interview with Serhii Plokhi, the Ukrainian historian, some months ago. I just gone back to the article in which he says Putin wants control of Ukraine, but he is prepared to go for plan B. And Plocky was making the point, I think, that Putin's goals are not set in stone. They're movable depending on the situation, depending on the state of the war, depending on how much territory Russian troops can retain control of or could retain control of. So I think potentially your argument might, might fall in the same groove as, as Serhii Plocky's there, that actually we should ne- not necessarily think of the Russian war aims here as something completely fixed, but something which is movable, depend- depending on what the situation is. And actually the goal really is to be able to claim a victory, no matter what that victory looks like. But Francis, any more final points from before we finish. Yes, well, it's been a while since I've had the opportunity to talk about Ukrainian culture in the context of this war. And I feel compelled to do so today following the news of the 124-year-old art gallery in Odessa damaged by Russian air strike. The city council have released footage showing blown out windows and debris inside the museum with pictures still hanging on the walls. It's located in one of the oldest Tsarist era palaces, which housed more than 10,000 works of art before the war, including paintings by some of the best known Russian and Ukrainian artists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Most of those have been removed now, but movingly they kept up some in order to maintain morale, much as the National Gallery in London did during the Second World War. And there's something about the images which are on our website, I would recommend people check them out, that I found very poignant, really, of empty art galleries with the art still hanging on the wall, but with so much debris around them. Thankfully, none of the paintings are damaged, which one can read as a metaphor, as it were. But at the same time, the risk and the fragility of the culture, too, I thought was worthy of noting in that context. And it nudged me just to mention an exhibition I visited at the Ukrainian Institute of America in New York back in September. There's a free exhibition there in the headquarters near the Met, and it really drums home the impact of this war on Ukrainian culture, a subject, of course, we've discussed many times. On the one hand, it has served as a renaissance of Ukraine's understanding of itself and the world's understanding of it. But the tremendous cost of losing so many of its artists, writers and performers. I found it very thought-provoking, the exhibition, and would recommend it to anyone in the area. I was the only one there on the afternoon that I visited, though the visitor's book, which I signed as well, showed just how many people had been there in the weeks and months before. It's a poignant reminder that if war is the continuation of politics by other means then that politics begins and ends with culture. Thank you, Dom and Francis. Yesterday, I had the pleasure of speaking again to Alicia Kearns, British Conservative MP and Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. The death of Wagner Group boss Yevgeny Prigozhin took place at the end of August. But, according to Kearns, the group still poses a huge threat to countries around the world. We spoke about the Wagner Group, how it's evolved, and what countries around the world can do to counter it. Here's our conversation. Well, Alicia Kearns, thank you so much again for your time. It's really good to hear from you um, a second time now on the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about the Wagner Group. Now, since the deadly crash that killed Yevgeny Prigozhin and many of his associates, including some of the founders of the Wagner Group, on the 23rd of August, I think... Uh, public attention and awareness of the group of this PMC has decreased slightly, but not for you. Why not? What should we? What should we know? 
You're completely right. Look, there's a real danger that now, just because Prigozhin has been killed, that essentially the activities of the Wagner Group and other private military companies slips back into the shadows. Wagner continues to operate. It is an extensive network of political and military operations, and it spans many continents. And their activities are just as live, whether it be in Africa or whether it be in other parts of the world as they were before. So it's really important we don't let this drop from our itineraries because we do need to disrupt their activities. And unfortunately, too many people were focused on Prigozhin, although, of course, he was really important rather than the wider operations. You've written that the group, that the Wagner group has, quote, continued to evolve. Could you explain what you mean by this? How, how have they changed since August? Sure. So essentially, one of the driving forces behind Wagner and a key to its group's resilience is that essentially it's like any commercial business driven by profit. It's an organised crime group. And what we know from other cartels and other organised crime groups is that when you cut off the head of the snake, it doesn't mean the organisation doesn't regroup behind a new leader. So despite there was, of course, turmoil after Prigozhin's killing, but the organisational structure itself remains in place. So essentially, they've got one goal only, to continue to profit, continue to rape Africa of its natural resources, to continue in this organised crime wave, helping the Kremlin achieve its goals, but ultimately financing and enriching itself. Another word you've used to describe the group is its attractiveness to autocratic and corrupt regimes as a tool of regime survival. I think that's really, really fascinating and potentially gets to the heart of what Wagner's about. Could you explain what you mean by this and maybe talk a little bit about how some regimes use Wagner? What, what do they want from them? What do they get in? What does Wagner get in return? So the Wagner group is most of all, above all, anything else beyond even the interest of the Kremlin, uh, its main force, its main objective is to help failing and autocratic regimes hold on to power. So what it does, it says to these leaders who are often in African countries, you want to stay in power? Right. You need a private military company, a private military who are going to hold your power for you. In return for us keeping you in power, we're asking for very little. We just want your natural resources. We want your gold. We want your copper. We want your lithium. And that's why we called our Wagner report Guns for Gold. And you've seen it, you know, Madagascar, you know, for example, it's not just military that they're offering. So, for example, in the 2018 presidential election, Wagner created this organisation called the Association for Free Elections. And essentially, we believe that they interfered in the election by carrying out this illegitimate monitoring mission. You know, you've seen them doing the same thing all over the world. Mali, after the military, it was invited by the military junta to come into the country by Colonel Simi. And that was all about helping the colonel hold on to power. And again, they created these fake entities like the Foundation for the Protection of National Values. And they published these surveys showing support for Russia, negative perceptions of the French. But it was all about helping the colonel a seat to power, influence the population and make sure that the Wagner mercenaries had lots of support so that they could steal these natural resources, enrich themselves and then have a country in debt to them and therefore at the weakness and mercy of the Kremlin's geopolitical aims. Can I ask, what's your sense of the link now between the authority of the Kremlin and Wagner? Considering, obviously, Prigozhin was what we think was killed on the orders of the Kremlin. Are they just are they a kind of cover group for Kremlin ambitions purely and solely now? How do you gauge that relationship? So I think like many kind of organised crime groups, they start out under the sole control and commissioning of one person or entity. So, for example, with Wagner, when they're operating in Syria, Wagner troops, even though private military companies are actually illegal, in Russia. Putin was allowing them to be put on Russian Air Force planes. They were flown over to Syria on those planes. They were armed with Russian military kit, Russian guns, Russian food, Russian uniforms, you name it. So this is 100% a Russian entity. But like with any beast you create, it starts to get out of control and sometimes to bite the hand of its owner. We have, that's what we saw with Prigozhin's march on Moscow. But actually, Although it is very much still doing the wishes and helping the Kremlin, it is its own organised crime entity whose main priority is enriching itself. Wagner is now a prescribed terrorist group in the UK for, for our international listeners, maybe for some of our British listeners as well. Could you just spell out exactly how we got to that point and what, it, what does that mean? If, if this is the British government fighting against Wagner, what does this mean they can't do or what new um, sanctions or whatever are now in place? 
So this was something I've been calling for for a long time, and I'm really pleased that we got this as a result of our report. What it means is that it is now a criminal offence under the Terrorism Act 2000 to support the Wagner Group. So that's everything from fundraising for them or arranging meetings for them, expressing support for their aims, displaying a Wagner flag or logo. And it also means that any Wagner assets in London or anywhere else in the country can be categorised as terrorist property and seized. And essentially, it limits the ability of the group to operate in the UK or access UK services. Could you talk a little bit about how you got that through? I mean, I know this sounds maybe a bit inside baseball in terms of politics, but I think I think lots of listeners are, w- w- would like their representatives in whichever parliaments around the world to enact this sort of thing. But could you just spell out how you got to that point? What kind of interests did you have to address? Uh, what kind of arguments did you have to make? How do we get there in, in, in British parliamentary democracy? So the way that we've been dealing with it is that obviously I've been calling it for a long time. So was the former chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And about 18 months ago, I asked the then chair before I took over, Tom, if we could do an inquiry into the Wagner Group, because I think they are so fascinating. And there was a real problem whereby everyone was only looking at Wagner in Ukraine, whereas I knew they were operating in multiple continents. And fortunately, he agreed. At that point, I think the committee had already kind of made up our mind that they should be prescribed. But essentially, by doing a full inquiry through the select committee, we were able to set out in intricate detail for the government exactly how they operate like a terrorist organisation, where they are operating, the benefits of prescribing. And we even set out a list of individuals who we felt should be sanctioned and the criminal acts that they themselves are responsible for. And as a result, I was told by the Foreign Office that essentially our report had enabled the government to go ahead with that prescription of Wagner, which obviously is a good, good thing. What do you make of other countries, allies and friends of the UK and their reaction to Wagner? Do you find yourself trying to push them to do more or is there a sort of international concerted effort around this? There is not an international concerted effort. And that is a real challenge. So it's really good you picked up on that. And it's something that I have been urging other politicians to do. And it's one of the recommendations we made again in our report, that government should work with other countries to tackle this. We are hoping that by prescribing Wagner, in and of itself, it says to other countries around the world, don't work with them. They are terrorists. You shouldn't be getting in bed with them. So that is something that I really hope will happen. But part of the challenge is also, and again, this is something we've asked the government to do, is to look at creating a genuinely compelling alternative for those priority countries who need investment and security partnership. So, for example, where we see the African coup belt and Wagner are absolutely wound up in that, how do we support those countries around them? So Ghana, Ivory Coast, where we haven't seen the contagion spread yet, but we know that Russia and Wagner will be interested in doing so. Let's help them. But of course, that kind of support has to come with conditions and monetary mechanisms and everything else like that. Uh, could you go into any more detail on that? I mean, in your view, how how can you? What does a, an alternate offer to Wagner, who, as from what you're saying, their offer is give us your natural resources and we'll ensure that you, strong man, here or there, stay in power. Uh, how do Western democracies and allies and friends uh, present something more compelling? Absolutely. Look, we will never be able to compete with someone who says, we'll give you guns, we'll come in, we'll operate illegally. There's no contracts. They make it sound like it's a wonderful beneficiary while they rape your country of its resources. But what we can do is focus on those countries where Wagner isn't engaged, so the neighbouring countries where there's a risk of contagion, and look at specific packages of aid and trade to support specific countries. But that should also include things like governance reform. How do we make sure they don't get to a point where they have an extreme autocrat who must stay in power in order for them themselves to maintain their power, their influence, and to stop themselves being prosecuted for the things they've done? It is a highly complex form of diplomacy, but it is things we have done and are capable of doing. But it requires also us to recognise that stopping contagion spreading is really fundamental to what the Foreign Office does. Do you think that since Prigozhin's assumed death, Wagner has in some ways become stronger? Or is it more that the threat is still there, it's evolving, and unfortunately some of us are taking our eye off the ball? I think it's an evolving threat. So I think there was an immediate kind of pause and concern after his death as to what would happen. But actually, in the months leading up to his death, you actually already saw Putin introducing potential successors to African leaders. So in the Africa summit that Putin held, there was all of a sudden new individuals in every single meeting with African state leaders. So that suggested there was already some sort of succession planning in place. And actually, as I said, with an organised crime group, 
the lower levels, the middle levels are very good at making sure that they continue to conduct their day-to-day business, even if the head uh, has changed. So there is a lot more work to be done. There is a lot more to expose and sanction and hamstring the effectiveness of a group like Wagner. There's a lot more international coordination that's required. But what we have to do above all is make sure that we don't now obscure and submerge the actions of this group once again, and that we recognise actually Wagner isn't on its own. There are other private military companies out there. That was, if that's all right, that was going to be my next question, actually. I mean, as you said, Wagner is one of the PMCs out there. It's the one I think the public are most aware of because of the march on Moscow, the death of Prigozhin, the fact that Prigozhin was a very effective communicator and propagandist. What else should we be aware of? So this is what we need the government to do, is to not just look at Wagner because it's become infamous and it's on the front pages. There are multiple, there have always been private military companies. Obviously, some of them are very famous from the Iraq war, particularly American ones. But there are Turkish, there are Emirati, there are all sorts of different private military companies. Some will be more legitimate than others. But this is why we should be having somebody within the Ministry of Defence whose job is to consistently map and horizon scan for how private military companies are operating and identify early doors where we see organisations that are explicitly undermining our interests abroad so we can intervene not once they become this enormous international network like Wagner has, but early doors to sanction, to limit, to contain. That was our failing with the Wagner Group. Is there anything else, Alicia, that you'd like to mention for our listeners? No, I mean, it's just one of those things where I think it's such a fascinating phenomena, but it's one that international countries are not gripping. And if we're not careful, this will become an industry, not just a phenomena. So it's something I'm really keen for us to keep track of. And anyone, please, with more interesting views on PMCs, do write to me and let me know about which ones I might not be aware of. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 